Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. What I know of my immediate and extended family, there's a ton of resilience in what's been endured, survived, overcome. But I also think that I've always been, from the time I was young, a person who just didn't make a big deal out of something that I wanted. I just did it. And I have achieved and done and seen and gone and worked out and whatever, a lot of things in my life because I just went, I want that. I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And so this was the first time actually that I really allowed myself to be supported because I was always of the opinion that I could probably do it better than trusting someone else and having them maybe mess it up until Maeve died. And then I began to realize that, of course, my life was a result of everything that I've been doing up to that point. And if I wanted something different, I needed to try something different. And maybe there were people who were worth paying to help me learn those things instead of just reading more and more books and going, Oh, that was a great book. All right. What's next on my list? Um, this experience really, really turned that around for me. And I think allowing yourself to be supported and studies show this too, right. is such a huge part of resilience. And so being able to make that shift in order to both survive this and to become even more resilient was a big piece of it. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Christine, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, Sarah Peck, who has been a steady referral source for amazing people. And uh, so no pressure at all. But before we (laughs) get uh, started with what your work is about, I want to start by asking you, do you have siblings? If so, what birth order were you? And what impact did that end up having uh, on your life and your career? I love that question. I am the oldest of four. And I am a very typical oldest. So high achiever, very independent, couldn't wait to leave the house, left home, moved halfway across the country when I was 17 for school and never went back. And I think that throughout my academic career, you know, started school when I was four. My mom had year and a half old twins. She felt I was ready and uh, she was, she was ready to not be dealing with, with the three of us, I think. So it was a good fit there, but I, I always excelled in school. That was where I got my, my positive attention. And I think I was also, I know I was also very bossy. <laughs> so a, a typical oldest in that way, although I would be honest and say that that was squelched by several teachers who I think were, were triggered. And so for a lot of years, I, I hid that sort of bossy leader part of, of who I was because it was not getting me positive attention to be female and to, uh, to act that way. I was also a people pleaser, right? Because I wanted to get, continue to get that positive attention from my parents after my siblings came along. And in a lot of ways, it really, it really served me well because I happened to be good at the things that they teach in school. And so I excelled, was able to get a scholarship and was, uh, became a professor at age 23. So I would say that overall being an oldest has had a positive impact on my life for the most part. Hmm. How did, uh, the dynamic that you had with your parents change, uh, as your siblings came along? So it was two and a half when my twin sisters were born. And up until that point, I'm told, you know, I was a very easy baby, very (laughs) outgoing, uh, just kind of, they would just pick up and go with me and very, just their light, right? They had tried for a while to have a baby. And so we're thrilled when I came along, my mom says that, when my sisters were born is the first time that she really felt that parenting was hard. 
because now she had a two and a half year old who was very inquisitive and very active. And she had these twins and she had no hired help, a little bit of family support, uh, decided to, uh, breastfeed them exclusively. <laughs> so that was a full-time job in and of itself. And I think that that was the time when I began to quite frankly question whether I was enough. And that's how my little two-year-old mind interpreted the girls coming along and they're understandably being a lot less attention to go around. You know, I have a 21 month old right now and my husband and I are older parents. And so we joke that a lot of the time it's the two of us and maybe a grandmother just sitting there staring at her, watching everything she does. <laughs> and so I think about that being my reality uh, as an oldest and then and then the girls coming along and that completely flip-flopping. And so I think when my brother came along, I was old enough to, I was six and I was old enough to want to hold him and want to be involved and get excited about, you know, sharing as much care as they would allow me to with this baby. But I would say that the biggest shift happened uh, when my twin, um, when my twin sisters were born and my parents did an excellent job of attempting to give us all individual attention, but understandably that dynamic was quite different. Yeah. Are you close to your siblings? I am close to one of my sisters as much as we can be. She lives in Australia. Uh-huh. So that time difference is a real bear uh, and we don't get to see each other often. Um, my brother lives in Austin and we chat occasionally and see each other on holidays, uh, but are not as, as close as I would love to be. You know, it's interesting because one of the reasons I asked that is I'm always curious about what impact age gap has on a bond between siblings. And I'm wondering what you think the impact is of that. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, you know, when I think the difference in gender uh, made a, combined with a six year age difference with my brother made a huge, a huge impact because he was the only boy. Right. And so we joke that he's always been great with women because he grew up in a house full of them and had to deal with, <laughs> with all these older sisters and share a bathroom and all of that junk that he had to deal with and is, you know, very sensitive and knows exactly how to talk to women. I think that there was some competition and some confusion among the three of us girls, partially because, well, they were twins, right? And so they always had each other and I was the oldest and kind of making my own way and setting the standards or whatever as oldest do. And I was much more serious and they were a lot more fun when we were growing up and always trying to get me to have fun. And I was always, you know, off doing some kind of work or being involved in some kind of activity. And so I think that two and a half year thing was a challenge. Uh, we were in high school together for one year and I think that they felt, you know, they really had to sort of follow in the footsteps of the path that I had chosen for myself. And, and, and that was tough. So coming from a, a big family, you know, I, I always wondered what it would be like to have another sibling around, I have a younger sister and, uh, not unlike yourself, I had a bit of jealousy when she was born. I remember one of my parents, family friends came to the house once to, to visit her. And this woman brought me some cookies and I remember her walking out and I said, I don't want these stupid biscuits. I want a real gift. <laughs> you know, as a five-year-old, she was thoughtful enough to think that, Hey, this kid is probably being jealous. And I was a little shit who was ungrateful. Uh, <laughs> but more importantly, uh, you know, growing up in such a big family of four siblings, what did you learn about navigating social relationships and social dynamics that later on impacted your life? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I look around a lot now. I have my assistant who's also a dear friend has four young kids and I look at her all the time. Like, how do you do it? It's like, I've kind of forgotten that that was my reality, that I actually saw that for my entire childhood. I think that I, I became a people pleaser because that's what was safe. And that's what got me attention. I think that I learned to avoid conflict because conflict is not 
something that my parents ever showed us, you know, they chose to have disagreements behind closed doors and certainly not rocking the boat in a, in a family that large, uh, again, felt safe with younger siblings, of course, just being younger, there's going to be more drama. And I think I was always the one to kind of be that safe, steady, oldest kind of rock. And I would say that that, that continued for a lot of my adulthood until, you know, I went through my own personal tragedy, which I'm sure we'll talk about and just said, F it. Like I'm going to rediscover who I was when I was two and be that person minus, you know, the tantrums. Mm-hmm. I think that actually makes a really perfect segue. I think what struck me when you were talking about the moment where your siblings came along is this sense that you're not enough. I think I can relate to that because I think I felt it to some degree for a great part of my life. It's something that I, I think even to this day wrestle with at moments. And I'm wondering what it is that started to shift that enabled you to resolve that and how other people resolve that in their own lives. I would say it's definitely something that still pops up for me from time to time. I think it's part of my, part of my work, part of my opportunities for growth. Uh, (laughs) We're going to frame it that way. But what happened for me is that in early 2015, I was expecting my first child. I didn't know if it was a boy or a girl and it had been a a textbook pregnancy medically. And at 37 weeks when I thought all we had to do was put up, put up my swollen feet and wait uh, to go into labor, a routine doctor appointment uncovered that this baby didn't have a heartbeat anymore. And that began a series of events that, of course, I went, they would send me straight to the hospital to be induced to deliver this little baby who turned out to be a girl who we named Maeve Evelyn and had no idea, either my husband or I, what to do with our lives at that point, how to survive this crazy thing that we had never even heard could happen. And we also became really aware, like, I can remember even in the hospital thinking like, this is the thing that's going to define me. It's going to make me or break me. And I'm going to choose for it to make me. And so that's what I did because I realized that this is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to me. Like I literally could not imagine something worse. (laughs) And so I knew that nothing worse could happen, frankly, like it took this unexpected tragedy of epic proportions to get me to get over my fear of not being enough, my fear of failure my fear of leaving what at that point was a safe company that I had founded and had grown exactly where I wanted it to be. Even though deep down I knew there was another level for me, I was comfortable. And it took that level of breaking me out of everything comfortable, basically demolishing, you know, my life to rubble, uh, my relationship to shambles, and having to redefine every relationship in my life because now I was the girl whose baby had died and plenty of people were way uncomfortable with that. Right. And still are to this day. That was, that was my opportunity to redefine myself and to start to realize that if I had survived this, I could do anything. And so somehow I must be enough. Yeah. You said that you had a moment where you could decide whether this was going to make you or break you. It doesn't strike me that that was an instantaneous decision uh, in the moment that it happened. What was your thought process after this occurred and how did you arrive at that conclusion? I think I saw myself 
through the lens of what I had perceived as how other people dealt with big tragedies in their lives. So my grandfather had been a, had died a bitter man. And that was because he was never able to forgive his father for loving, basically showing favoritism toward the prodigal son, his brother. And I watched that. And then on the other, that was my dad's dad. And on the other side of my dad's family, my great grandfather, who was a second father to my dad, had lost two wives and both of his kids. He had survived all of them. My great uncle died of polio despite extreme measures being taken. He was the bright, shining Ivy League pre-med star of the family. And my grandmother died the year my parents were married at 47. And she was an amazing person and somebody, you know, that I actually look and act quite a lot like, I'm told. So I looked at, at how he had handled this insanely tragic life. And what he chose to do was to be happy and joyful. And he was a dentist and came from nothing and put a bunch of his siblings through school as well and would accept chickens as payment from the poor, you know, the people in poverty who he served and, and was just a very kind man and somebody that when I was a toddler, I knew and loved and had that connection to, even though I don't remember him, my parents tell me. So I looked at these two people and I thought, this is obviously black and white thinking, but I can see a way in which I could frankly become an alcoholic and just numb for the rest of my life. I like wine, you know, <laughs> and I knew that that was a potential for me or I could dig down deep and make some meaning of her life. I think there was a lot of confusion over how do I basically parent a child who's dead. And I know from talking to other lost parents that everybody's greatest fear, and I think this is true for anybody who loses someone that they care about a lot, but especially a parent, greatest fear is that your child will be forgotten. And especially because, you know, she never took a breath. Uh, the only pictures we have of her in the hospital room. So I, I really wanted to create a legacy for her and to make her famous and in the process to, to create something that I was proud of as well, because I had known my whole life that I had a desire to do something big in the world. And I, and I love business and I love work. And this, this felt like the outlet to do it where I could create a brand where I could talk, talk about her a lot, where I could raise awareness. My husband and I started a nonprofit as well to support other families like us. Cause we're quite resourceful and, and not everyone is, or even knows how to be in a circumstance like that. And so these are all part of my, you know, my processes. I think that seeing it as, as a black and white, like these two roads helped me to make a determination that I was going to go all in on this other, on this other path to, to make me, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that emotional resilience is in your DNA uh, or do you think it's been brought about or, you know, uh, excavated as a result of circumstances and life experiences? I love that question. I would say it's both. I think that what I know of my immediate and extended family, there's a ton of resilience in what's been endured, survived, overcome. But I also think that 
I've always been from the time I was young, a person who just didn't make a big deal out of something that I wanted. I just did it. And I have achieved and done and seen and gone and worked out and whatever, a lot of things in my life because I just went, I want that. I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And so this was the first time actually that I really allowed myself to be supported because I was always of the opinion that I could probably do it better than trusting someone else and having them maybe mess it up until Maeve died. And then I began to realize that, of course, my life was a result of everything that I've been doing up to that point. And if I wanted something different, I needed to try something different. And maybe there were people who were worth paying to help me learn those things instead of just reading more and more books and going, oh, that was a great book. All right, what's next on my list? Um, this experience really, really turned that around for me. And I think allowing yourself to be supported and studies show this too, right, is such a huge part of resilience. And so being able to make that shift in order to both survive this and to become even more resilient was a big piece of it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. 
Yeah, uh, I appreciate that you brought that up. It, it you know, it coincides. It's, I think it's serendipitous that we're talking about this, given that Sarah introduced us, and she just yesterday published a piece on uh, the benefits of going to therapy, which is incredibly stigmatized in the culture, especially the one that I grew up in. It took me decades before I would allow myself to get to that point of of asking for help, and yet. You know, we have what seems to be an epidemic almost of high profile suicides and you know, a lot of mental health issues. And uh, so I, I appreciate that you brought that up. Uh, another question that comes from the experience uh, for me is how did it change your relationship with your parents and how did it impact the kind of parent that you're being today? I love these questions so much, Jeannie. Thank you. <laughs> I had to, I mentioned before, but I definitely had to renegotiate my, my role with both of my parents because they didn't know how to support me. I mean, no one did, right? I didn't know how to support myself. Uh, and also because I was such an independent, like kind of adult from the time I was young, it, our relationship as, as adults, I had kind of, I had kind of driven, like I had, I think I really wasn't very open with them about what I needed. Like we were friends, but I wasn't allowing them to support me. And I had to figure out if I even wanted that and how, you know, my, my mom is a very strong, independent woman. And my dad is very sensitive and I'm a mix. And so the way that, that they grieved was quite different, each of them and figuring out how to choose how much I wanted to let them see me grieve was a whole, Oh, you know, months and years long process in itself. But it became really clear that even with saying all of that, they were also my safe space because when we left the hospital, we came to my house, came back to the house and my parents had, had driven up to be with us, but I did not want to be home and I didn't want to be alone. Like that's one of the things that I remember the most is just like, no one leave me alone. I can't talk on the phone for whatever reason and I don't want to be alone. And so serendipitously, my, my parents had literally moved into their new home in Nashville. They had moved up from Orlando, my childhood home to Nashville and had been in their house one night when we found out that Maeve died and Nashville's a three hour drive from, from where I was at the time. And so I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm packing up. I'm, I'm coming home with you. And we, we did, we went there for two weeks and just camped out, you know, I mean, the mattresses like <laughs> didn't even have sheets on them when we got there, there's boxes everywhere, but it didn't matter. You know, they, they took care of me. They took care of my husband and they just, they just let us be. And that was such a gift. I think one of the big things that we all had to learn is this idea of the kind of, this is a Jen Hatmaker idea that one of my friends shared with me. So I'm probably not going to get the, the title right, but the idea is kind of uh, concentric circles of, of grief and whoever's at the center of it can be supported by the people on the outside, but the people on the outside it's not really going to work for them to be supported by the people in the center of the bullseye. And so that was something that I really had to teach them is that like, I can't, I can't carry your grief for Maeve. Like we can grieve together, but I'm not going to be able to be the kind of support for you that, that you need. And I think because I had been so sort of closed off and available to listen to them talk about what's going on with them, but not really share much, emotionally about what was going on with me, that was just kind of the natural role. Like they would want to, you know, talk about things, bring, bring them up. And, and I couldn't handle it. I was like, listen, I'm, you know, 
doing good if I get out of bed, if I take a shower, like it's a bonus, you know, and I, I, I'm not available to, to carry this grief energy for you. So I said that was the biggest, the biggest shift that I made. And then with them in terms of how I parent having what the lost community calls a rainbow baby, the, the beauty after going through this storm of a loss is something that I am deeply, deeply grateful for and joyful about every day. There's been a lot of anxiety associated both with a pregnancy following a full-term loss, as well as now parenting a living child that I've had to manage and get therapy for, for sure. I'm a big proponent of therapy. But I also have found myself less available to complain than a lot of, you know, a lot of people who casually talk about, you know, their kids doing this or having that or it being a nightmare. Like I just have a value now that (laughs) I know what the alternative is. And while, of course, you know, she drives me crazy and is exerting her will and no is her favorite word right now. Uh, And, you know, a five minute tantrum yesterday over the fact that I wouldn't let her sip out of my water bottle. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I, I also go, of course, she's the cutest thing ever. She is the light of my life. And because I'm not a person who only ever wanted to be a parent, didn't even know if I wanted to be a parent. That's been a huge shift for me to experience that level of, of joy and gratitude and, and presence with this, you know, with this little miracle I have now. Wow. So one more question around this, a lot of parents listen to this show and if you could pass on any advice to them, what would it be? Hmm. I think that I think the thing is that we probably all know somebody who's been through some kind of a loss whether it's a miscarriage, a stillbirth or you know, someone losing a living child in some kind of in some kind of tragedy of which there have been some of those in the headlines just recently too. And the biggest thing I would want you to know is that remembering making yourself available to your friends, your family, whoever who've experienced something like this and saying the child's name is really the best gift that you can give them because most people don't know what to say. And a lot of people aren't even willing to go there because they don't want to imagine it happening to themselves. But the compassion that you can show by, by saying a name, by acknowledging the life is, I believe a gift that can really change, can really change the lives of your friends or family who have gone through something like this, because it's one in 160 pregnancies ends in a stillbirth. We didn't think we knew anybody, but once, once this happened to us, of course, right. People came out of the woodwork to share and, and people are still grieving this 50 and 60 years later because there wasn't the kind of support and awareness and it would just not talked about. So I'd say, of course, you know, the cliche things like hug your babies and appreciate your kids and all of those things. Yes. But also I would challenge you to be willing to be even a little bit of a, of a support system for those in your life who've, who've been through this, whether or not they have living children, because that is what helps them to survive and, you know, go on to, to thrive as well. Well, thank you for that. Let's shift gears a little bit and move to something a bit more lighthearted. (laughs) You mentioned that you were a professor at the age of 23. And for that reason, there's no way we're getting out of this conversation without me asking you about education. Uh, If you had to design the education system, the future, the one that you're uh, child is going to actually end up in, how would you redesign it based on your own experiences with it? And what would you change about it? Mm. Yeah. Both as a student and as a professor, 
I would love to see a shift toward more, toward more teaching how to learn, right. Rather than, than regurgitation, rather than teaching to the test, rather than, uh, arguing over a sort of subjective metrics. I taught both. I taught it. I taught media. So I taught writing, shooting, editing, web development, and watching, especially kids who had come in, who were very, very attached to having, to getting the A, of course, like I'm raising my hand too. That was totally me. Uh, stress and struggle with doing creative projects or writing a script, presenting these projects to the whole class, the anxiety that I saw them develop. And of course the anxiety that I felt too was so, so not helpful to my future career, both as an educator and as an entrepreneur. I think that what I would love for my daughter is for her to learn the growth mindset associated with being an entrepreneur, if that's what she chooses, because I believe our school system does not do a good job of teaching us to be entrepreneurs. It teaches us how to be good employees. And for somebody who had the entrepreneurial bent, frankly, the reason that I went into a nine to five job was because I didn't know how to start my own business. I always knew that I wanted to. And so while I'm not super educated on the ins and outs of the education system as it stands today, yet it's been a while since I was a professor and I'm not paying too close of attention to it for my toddler yet. Um, I'm very interested in the development of skills to learn and skills to that are applicable to life instead of the classroom and the tests. Well, talk me through how you get from college professor to what you're doing today. <laughs> So as soon as I became a college professor, I started a side hustle as a digital marketer. I had just done a master's and my thesis project was a documentary for PBS about this horse farm in the town where I went to school. And it wound up doing really well. It won a telly and some international awards. Uh, it aired all over the country. And as a result, the farm gave me a horse and that was a lifelong dream of mine. I grew up loving horses and never had one. And so when it came time for me to decide what I was going to do, my alma mater had called me and, and said, Hey, will you, will you come teach for us? Just offered me the job. And I was planning at that point to head to either DC or LA to pursue a career in film. But I also knew that I was basically going to be living on grad school stipend or less in a big city with a huge cost of living raise. And I knew I could do it. I knew I could do it. I knew I could put in the 18 hour days and like make it in the film or documentary industry at National Geographic Discovery and whatever. I had the contacts. I was working that my whole spring semester. Uh, but when the call came from my alma mater and then the offer came to give me a horse, <laughs> I was like, this feels like the lifestyle. I want to create right now. That feels better to me. And so I chose, I chose that. What I realized is of course that I wanted to go full time with my, with my digital marketing business. So I took a different job after one year of teaching and teaching several of the same students that I had been in school with before my master's dealing with discipline problems because I was a 23 year old uh, female and you know, the 21, 22 year old guys would just act up whatever. And I wasn't comfortable with that. I became a career counselor and working one-on-one -on -one with students, helping them find and land their dream jobs. Ironically, not in mine. And I was also uh, in a pretty difficult uh, work environment where there was a ton of turnover and it was, it was really high stress. So I spent the next few years building my side hustle, working with clients all over the country, really enjoying that. And finally, after, after four years in that job, I quit to go full-time 
with my online marketing business. I did that for five years. And while doing that also started a horse breeding business. And then after five years of running that full time, Maeve died. And so in the months that followed losing her, I finally paid someone to be a mentor instead of a free mentor. (laughs) I had some amazing free mentors, but I really invested in myself at that point and started doing the the deep discovery work on, on what my next step was. And out of that came this realization that what I had always done naturally was try to convince the people in my life to become entrepreneurs, (laughs) especially, especially women. Because when I was in my twenties, I had an amazing mentor who was a guy and I worked out of this incredible co-working space that was a tech startup co-working space and everybody around me was male. And I just wondered where in the world were the rest of the women. And when I realized that I really took a stand for all these other friends of mine who were saying, Oh, I wish that I could do what you do, but I'm so scared of failing. And I would constantly be talking my friends into trying to monetize their hobby, whatever it was, or talk my husband into monetizing his hobby. The light bulb went on and I went, I can help people do this. Like I did it. I can help people do this. I've been doing it for a long time. I have a way of making it really simple. And I love the strategy piece. And I love the confidence and encouragement piece. Like those are my uncovering people's confidence and and encouraging them to believe that they can do it and actually take the steps to do it with simplicity. Those are my superpowers. And so I began to build the business that I have now helping people to do just that. Okay. Uh, a couple of questions come from this. How do you accomplish goals, uh, or what you would say monetizing a hobby without having your achievement and your identity become coupled with each other? Mm, Tell me more what you mean by that. Okay. So, so often we measure sort of our, our personal value, our self-worth, the meaning from our life. We attach it entirely to one thing, an external result of some sort, one that we almost always have no control over. And I think to me, there was a certain point at which I had to start learning how to separate those two things to say, okay, you know what? like how well I do, uh, in this business is not the determination of my value as a human being. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I think that's a process because I think that, uh, I think that when we're doing work that we love, it's, that's naturally, there's naturally going to come a point when we look at, when we look at that and go, how much of this is tied to my identity, Right. And I would say that that certainly was more the case for me as I sort of dove in kind of redefining my identity uh, after Maeve died because work is work is comfortable for me. Action is my default, relaxing and having fun. Not so much. Right. That's that's my work. And so when when my rainbow baby came along, that was such a huge shift that I needed to look at and redefining, redefining my roles both as a mother to her, as a business owner, and as a human being who, who does deserve to enjoy life and does have that desire, even if that's not the first thing that I was thinking about when I was waking up in the morning, it was, it was the business. And so I'd love to hear what, what you would say about this, but I would say that for me, a lot of it has come in establishing better, uh, work, work boundaries for lack of a better word. I work when I have care for my daughter, which is 25 hours a week. And that feels good for me. And it allows me to be fully, fully present in one thing and then switch to another thing when I pick her up or she gets handed off from the nanny. And then also to, make conscious time because I'm a planner. I love to schedule things, make conscious time for me to relax, to do what I feel like doing. Also make conscious time for my relationship with my husband. But 
it's, it's a struggle when you do something that you really, really love and you feel like you could do all the time. Mm. Right. Because I mean, there are plenty of facets of my identity. Like I go, I make time to take a weekly writing lesson now, you know, and I make time to do all these things that I would consider self care that if you had asked me five years ago, if there was time for any of those things, I would have said, hell no, I've got a business to build world domination to take on. Like, and that's, what's most important. But I, what I have found ironically is that the more that I detach and enjoy my life, the more my business grows, not only am I having more fun, but like my business starts to grow in my sleep. And so I think that the more I've been able to lean into that and trust that and notice externally that that's actually happening and not the story in my head of, I have to be attached to my computer all the time in order for my business to grow. Like I consider that, I consider that grace that that's actually what's working for me instead of being rewarded by the hustle because it it's, I'm being intrinsically rewarded to do the thing that's hard for me. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting because I think for me, the place where I draw the most satisfaction I'm starting to realize is this constant need to get better at the craft, looking at what I've done and wondering how I could improve it. Going back to interviews obsessively and thinking about the questions I should have asked, but didn't Mm -hmm. Uh, looking at my writing and thinking about how this could be better than it is right now. Uh, That to me is where I think I've found the most sort of fulfillment because that you know, in, in so many ways has the potential to lead to mastery. And I think, you know, we wrote this piece called the unmistakable guide guide to becoming a, a world-class performer. I said, you know, the, the benefit of, of mastering your craft is not what you get from the world, but what you can give to it as a result. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree with, I agree with you. I love that. So you mentioned that, uh, you had found mentors and actually decided to invest in, and pay them. What was your process for finding the right kind of person to work with cheesy Facebook ad (laughs) (laughs) sitting on the couch, drinking wine one night, scrolling through Facebook going like, I don't know what to do differently, but this sure ain't working. Uh, and seeing somebody who had the results and the life that I wanted to live. I didn't know anything about, I mean, this was 2015. So I was very late adopter. I had never been in a Facebook group. I didn't know anything about funnels or email automation, even though I was running a digital marketing agency, that wasn't what my small business clients needed. They needed, they needed Facebook ads. They needed websites. They needed well-run social media pages and they needed leads. And I was able to do all of that, um, without these things that are, uh, such a part of my world now. Anyway, I clicked on her Facebook ad. I went through her funnel before I even knew what I was doing. I found myself very connected to her. And I called my dad because he has, he has been sort of a right-hand man in, in a lot of businesses and, and a consultant as well. And I consider him very wise with this type of thing. And I said, Dad, you know, I'm about to drop a couple grand to work with this person. I, I think she can really help me. But like, this feels really crazy. Am I crazy? should I be doing more research? You know, is this foolish? And he said, Christine, the most important thing is that you hire somebody you feel like you can learn from because that's, what's going to make you available to actually learn from them. And so you could do all of this other research. You could, you know, compare a bunch of people side by side. There's really no point. Don't overwhelm yourself in that way. If you feel like you can learn from her and that's what your gut is saying, do it. And so, you know, with shaking fingers, right, I, I pushed that purchase button and that was the start of it. It's interesting because I just finished uh, reading Nassim Taleb's latest, latest book called Skin in the Game. And when I think about the investments that I've made in either mentors or coaches or personal growth or courses, Somehow it's always the ones where I put in the most money that I got the most results from. And I think I'm convinced it's because of the skin in the game. I mean, Unmistakable Creative literally started with a $500 investment from my dad to take an online course about building a popular blog. And I think the primary reason why I was so diligent about following through with that course is because I didn't want my dad to think I was a flake, which he had up until that point in my life. I didn't want him to think this was just another crazy batshit scheme. And so I was like, I'm going to finish this just for that one reason alone. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, what's so interesting is that the more, the more I've invested, I've found the exact same thing. And every time I raise my prices, my clients get better results. You know, I don't think I've exponentially become that much better of a coach. Although I know I've improved over the years, it's the way that they show up for themselves. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really amazing. Uh, I can see now why Sarah referred you as a guest. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? As cheesy as this might sound, I would say that it's memorable. You're memorable because it's such a noisy world. We have so much flying at us all the time through all of our senses and through all of our screens that if you stand out as memorable, that means that you're different. That means that somehow you have made an impression. You have been distinctive. And to me, that's unmistakable. Well, I think that makes a, a really fitting and beautiful end to our conversation. Where can people learn more about you and your work? My website's lifewithpassion.com. And the website for my book, which came out earlier this year, is theincomereplacementformula.com. I also love connecting personally, so feel free to send me an email at christine at lifewithpassion.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, 
whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.